Those of you that uh, are part of our church, you know, I don't give up the pulpit lightly, but every couple of years, I try to bring someone in to challenge us missionally on this Sunday, and today, I am honored to welcome uh, Nate Aiken to be here with us. His wife, Kelsey, has joined him here. Nate is on the leadership team for the Pillar Network. The Pillar Network is an affinity-based association of churches that equips, plants, revitalizes churches together, and Nansman River joined this network of churches just a month ago. And I thought this would be a great uh, exposure uh, for our church to be able to hear from Nate today. And so I know you'll be in prayer for him as he comes to bring God's word. Good morning. If you have a copy of God's word, we're going to be starting in 1 Samuel 16. So turn there. We'll look at verses 7 and then 11 through uh, 13. And as you're turning there, let me just say uh, greetings in the name of our Lord and greetings on behalf of the churches that make up the Pillar Network. Uh, it is a joy to be here this morning. Thank you to the pastors. Thank you, Pastor Ryan. You say you don't give up the pulpit much, so uh, this better be good, I guess. And uh, thank you, though, for entrusting me with addressing your people with the word on this Pray, Sin, Go Sunday. And I'm honored by the task, and I'm thankful for our partnership in the gospel now with Pillar, that we're going to indeed partner together to, to plant, equip, and to revitalize churches all over the world. And so excited to be here. Now, this morning, we're going to look at a familiar story, likely whether you are a longtime follower of Christ or you're just kind of here this morning checking out Christian things. Uh, it is a familiar story, the story of David and Goliath. It's a story that's often used, you know, in sports metaphors, it's used for underdogs, you know, like kind of like ACC football, things like that. But I think because it's a familiar text, it's a text that can oftentimes be misunderstood. In fact, David and Goliath is sometimes primarily taught as being about you and how you can dare to be a David. Or it's a prosperity sermon about how you, and I emphasize you, can defeat the giants in your life. However, as with all the scriptures, I would say this text is primarily about the glory of God. In fact, this text is more about a big God than a big you. But because we serve a big God, we can have courageous faith. Now, if you have grown up in the church a long time, it's sometimes hard to remember. I grew up looking, you know, watching the Hanna-Barbera cartoons and the flannel graphs and things like that. And we can forget this is a true story. It's a true story that centers on a spirit-anointed king who fights for his people precisely because they do not and cannot save themselves nor face down the giants in their lives. And for this reason, when we come to this text, I think we should more quickly identify with the Israelites than we should identify with David. We identify with the soldiers who are on the sidelines rather than the king who will go to do battle with the giant. And as we do this morning, as we identify with the soldiers, with the Israelites who are on the sideline, we're going to see in this text, Genesis 3.15, and that ongoing cosmic war between the serpent in Eden and, and God who would defeat him. We will see in this text, we will see faith, we will see courage, we will see the weak shaming the strong, we will see the humble shaming the proud, and appropriately on a Sunday morning about missions, we will see zeal for the glory of God. And I would argue, as with all the Old Testament, we will get a glimpse of our Christ this morning. You know, it's said that the great reformer, Martin Luther, wrote that wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, that he, he wrote it during the plague. It's reported that he would often say to his fellow reformer and friend, a, a man named Philip Melanchthon, he would say to him when he needed comfort and when he needed strength, he would, he would just simply look at his friend and say, come, Philip, 
let us sing the 46th Psalm together. And it's moments like Goliath that must have been in David's mind when he wrote Psalm 46 about a God who is a strong tower and a refuge. And so I want to say with Luther this morning, come brothers and sisters, let us turn to the word this morning for comfort and for strength and to see our Christ. So let me read the text. And if you will, out of honor for God's word, let's stand as we read. We have been given the words of life. And again, I'm going to read in 1 Samuel 16 to set the context, but we're going to give our attention to 1 Samuel 17. And here's the scene. Samuel has come to Bethlehem. And then in verse 7, it says this. And the author writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then verse 11 Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother and of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, now as we turn our attention to the word, Father, I do ask that you would help me. Help me, a sinner, to communicate faithfully your word. Father, help us as a congregation of sinners to receive your word this morning like we would receive bread. And so, Father, now what we know not, would you please teach us? And Father, what we have not, would you please give us? Father, what we are not, please make us. Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So this is a good question. What do you fear or what scares you? You know, some people are scared by heights and snakes and spiders. People are afraid of public speaking. In fact, it's in a recent survey of actually years ago, but a survey came out that said the number one fear of Americans is public speaking and the number two fear of Americans is death. So the comedian Seinfeld jokes, you would rather be in the casket than the one giving the eulogy at a funeral. Can you recall times when you were afraid. Can you recall times when fear started to grip you? I can still remember when I was in middle school, I was at a minor league baseball game and we were there in the stands and there were these older guys there who were getting drunk and they were you know, drinking too much. And they started screaming at us, cussing at people standing around them and particularly at us because we wouldn't get up and do the wave and they wanted us to do the wave. Now there's some times to yell at me. You can ask my wife when it's appropriate to yell at me, but not doing the wave is not one of those times. Unfortunately, though, because we live in a fallen world, fear is a part of life, which also begs the question, not just what are we afraid of, what sort of enemies do we face? You know, we face things like pandemics and death and disease and disasters. We have real enemies, internal enemies, like our own sinful appetites of anger and lust and greed and selfishness and obsession with the approval of others. And we have external enemies in a fallen world as well, enemies that threaten us all the same. Enemies like storms and earthquakes and cancer and viruses and on and on and on we could 
go. And behind it all, we face a serpent that the scriptures tells us would like nothing more than to sift us like wheat. So in a world of foes and fear, in a world of chaos and darkness and strife, where do we turn for courage? Where do we turn for true courage for things like evangelism and sending and going? And where should abiding faith be directed? The text this morning will help us see that true and lasting courage is shaped by faith, by a confidence in God who keeps his promises to sustain and deliver and prosper his people, often in this life, but certainly in the life to come. For our purpose this morning and for our Sunday theme, my main idea is this, that we should be bold witnesses because as Luther put it in a mighty fortress is our God, we should be bold witnesses because the right man is on our side. The right man stands as our go-between, who stands between us and our enemies, both our internal and external enemies. Now, here's the context of what we're going to look at in 1 Samuel 17, and we just have just read it together. It is after the days of the judges, and Israel now has the king that they wanted. They have King Saul, who is described as a strong and tall man. And yet in 1 Samuel 15, he has just disregarded and disobeyed God. So Samuel informs him that now God is rejecting him and giving his kingdom to another who he says is better than you. And now in chapter 16, the, the chapter we just read, we are for the first time in the scriptures introduced to David, an unlikely king, if you will, from humble roots. He is unlikely because he is still young, but also because of this description that we read. He is, he is ruddy. He has beautiful eyes. It's, we, are said, uh, we are told that he is handsome. And this is meant to invoke the idea that he is a cute kid, not a warrior king. However, the text tells us very clearly, God looks at the heart. And so he has Samuel anoint him as king, which is pivotal to the story this morning. It means the spirit has now come upon him to empower him for the service he will be called to. And it also indicates that David now is the true king and not Saul. And yet as soon as he is anointed as king, an enemy arises against God's people. And that brings us to chapter 17 and to the first part of the text. The first part of the text this morning, chapter 17, verses 1 through 16, we see the, the fear of Israel, the fear of Israel in the face of God's enemies. Look at verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and then down to chapter, uh, verse 3, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other with a valley between them. The Philistines are Israel's arch enemy. They despise, they hate Israel, and they hate Israel's God. And so they have come up hoping to either wipe out the Israelites or make them slaves, as we'll see. Now, if you know the Old Testament, the music from Jaws should be going off in your head as you read those verses. You know that dun, 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 because the Israelites were supposed to drive these idolatrous, wicked Philistines out of the land. And, yet, and God had actually promised them victory over the Philistines if they would do that. And yet because of Israel's disobedience, because they had not driven them out, it now may cost them their very lives. The whole narrative this morning will show us that Israel does not trust in the promises of God in contrast to the unlikely king who absolutely trusts in the promises of God. Now in the text, verse four, we're introduced to the giant. We get his description, Goliath. We see in verses four through seven, his description. We'll hear what he has to say in verses eight through 10. Here's what the text says. 
And there came up from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. Here he is. His name, his name is Goliath. He's from a town called Gath. But again, we've heard this story so many times. Let's do the best we can to put ourselves in the scene, to imagine what it would be like if we were a soldier standing there seeing this man for the first time. This behemoth of a man swaggers out into this valley between the two sides. I mean, if you're a basketball fan, think Shaquille O'Neal. If you're a you know, WWF wrestling fan from back in the day when it was good, think Andre the Giant, only bigger. Now, how big is he? He is nine feet, nine inches tall. His armor alone weighs 125 pounds. Just think about that. His armor alone is larger than a fifth grader. His spear weighs 15 pounds. So he is a massive, tall, strong individual. You know, only slightly taller and stronger than Pastor Ryan. I don't know why they're laughing. The sheer sight of his size and the enormity of his armor terrifies Israel. It is interesting that Goliath's armor is given so much attention in the text, and that is in part to show just how big he is, but there is actually a larger theological purpose to why the author gives so much attention. In verse five, the literal rendering of coat of mail could also be translated scale armor. The author wants the reader to recall Genesis chapter three. He wants the reader to know Goliath looks like a massive serpent and that once again, among God's people in God's land, just as in Eden, a snake has come in as a threat. And then let's hear the taunts of Goliath. Verse eight, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Here in the text, we see the theme of what is called representative combat or a champion stepping out from their side to fight on behalf of their people. In fact, you would call it one fighting in the place of the many in this kind of winner take all challenge. This champion or this go between man would step out to fight for his side, standing between the enemy and his own people and whoever killed the other, all of his people would partake in the victory, would partake in the spoils of war, even if they didn't lift a finger themselves to accomplish it. But we see the Israelites' response, sadly, in verse 11. Here's what it says. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. When you kind of think about verse 11, it is a tragic verse. Here we see the people of God with all the promises of God. They're the ones standing in the corner cowering like defeated wimps. And worst of all, King Saul, who himself is described in 1 Samuel 9 as a giant of a man, is also greatly afraid. They have disregarded that God is on their side. They have disregarded that he has promised them victory over the Philistines. In this text, there is no faith, there is no courage. And if you didn't notice it, there's not even a mention of prayer in the face of this obstacle. 
Dominating this text in so many ways is not just the size of Goliath. Dominating this text is the size of unbelief among the people of God. Now skip down to verse 16. It's a pivotal verse. Here's what the author says. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. For 40 days, and that's a significant number in the scriptures, this vile man takes his stand against the armies of God. This recalls the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience and the lack of faith to take the land as they were promised they would. If you know your Bible, do you remember why the Israelites refused to take the land? Do you remember why they refused to take the promised land at first? Because it parallels what's happening here in the text. 10 of the 12 spies come back from seeing the promised land and they say to the people, we cannot take the land because they are giants and we are grasshoppers in their sight. In so many ways, Israel is now back in the wilderness. And again, they fail to be obedient. They fail to believe the promises of God. But most importantly, they fail to believe that God is with them. Which leads us to the second part of the text. Not only do we see the fear of Israel in the face of God's enemies, we see the faith of David. Verses 17 through 37. Here's what the text says. Verse 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an epoch of parched grain and 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring back some token from them. Jesse tells his son, David, take this bread. And what I kind of want to imagine is this kind of like 10 cheese queso down to your brothers at the army. See how they're doing, hear a report, come back and tell me what's going on. And so David does this. And now I want to look at verse 23. I want to move down to verse 23 because it's the turning point in the text. And here's what it says. If you are following along, verse 23, here's what the author says. And as David talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Once again, here comes this giant to taunt and mock and challenge Israel, but something is different this time. This time, David hears him. This time, the anointed one of God hears this blasphemer speak. And look at what happens, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw this man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. The men of Israel, the soldiers of Israel, as they see the giant, as they see Goliath, they flee. And because it's such a desperate situation, Saul offers the world to anyone who will take down the giant. Whoever takes down the giant gets lots of money, gets the princess, gets to be exempt from taxes. And it is such a massive reward, you would think somebody would jump at the opportunity. I mean, who in this room doesn't want to be exempt from taxes? But they must be thinking, what good is a reward if I'm six feet under? David is different, however. When David hears Goliath defy and belittle God, David's ticked off. I mean, just listen to what he says in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David understands that this challenge is not just against Israel. This challenge is against Israel's God and he will not stand for it. David is essentially saying in verse 26, have you lost your mind? Who do you think you are to defy God? 
David has rightly sized up the situation. He understands this is not just a physical battle. This is a theological and spiritual one. The glory and the honor and the reputation of Yahweh, Israel's God is at stake. And just let that sink in by way of application this morning. And we'll unpack this more in a minute. Whether you're in this room and you're a child or you're a teenager, you're a young adult, an adult, more seasoned adult, David is more concerned with the reputation of God than he is his own safety. And David is certainly more concerned with the glory of God than he is his own comfort. Particularly on a morning as we think about praying and sending and going. Can that be said about us? We're more concerned with the glory of God than we are our own comfort. Now skip down to verse 31 and 32. Here's what it says. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him because your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul hears what David has been saying to these other men. And so he calls for him. And if you think about it again, this is a sad scene. Just contemplate what's taking place here. The, the, the runt, the youth is telling the tall and muscular king, do not lose heart. I will go out and fight for Israel. Now Saul responds to him, verse 33, here's what he says. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul initially rejects David's offer and you can imagine kind of how this went, right? David, like this is cute and all and thanks for bringing us the queso, but you can't be serious. He is a warrior and you are but a boy. And yet David will not relent. Verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David is confident. David is confident because he has defeated wild animals to protect his sheep before. And now he, as the new anointed king, he will now protect his new flock, the people of Israel. David is confident. David is courageous. He is courageous because of his faith in the fact that God will defend his own honor. He believes that God will make Goliath's fate the same as he has made of the fate of the lions and the bears. In David's mind, as Goliath began to disgrace and to blaspheme God, as Goliath began to mock the one who had created him, he had become like one of those wild animals who threatened the flock. And now David, in a, new, in a sense, a new Adam will do what Adam was supposed to do in the Garden of Eden and take dominion over the wild animal that threatens his people, Israel. David is confident because he serves a God who has zeal for his own name and who is much more powerful than any giant. Which leads us to the final section. Not only have we seen the fear of Israel and the faith of David, and now we're going to see the fate of God's enemy. We're going to see the fate of Goliath. Verse 38 says this, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. 
His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. David doesn't want the armor that Saul has given him. This is a sign that David does not intend to go to battle with earthly weapons, but ones of faith. He intends to go out like a shepherd to protect his sheep and tame the wild animal by taking five stones that most scholars say would have been about the size of a tennis ball. In fact, one Old Testament scholar speaking of this text would say this, Goliath has committed blasphemy, a capital crime. So David is going out to stone him to death. And now the one-on-one duel is on, right? It's, you know, back in the day, this is Ali Frazier. This is Tyson Holyfield. If you're a Rocky fan, it's Rocky Drago. And here now the champion's fate will be the fate of his people. And one of those clear showdowns of the righteous versus the wicked, right? David versus Goliath, the gladiator versus Caesar, the allies versus Germany. Anybody against Duke. And yet again, brothers and sisters, this is not just about mono and mono combat. This is about theology. One dressed like a snake who defies God, who wields death against God's people, just like the serpent in Eden. And just as Adam was to rule over the beasts of the field, David now steps out into the field and he is going to exercise dominion over this beast. And the fight begins, verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. Goliath moves forward, has a shield bearer in front of him who who happens to be completely useless. He had one job, he can't even do that. And Goliath believes David is unfit for the challenge. Again, you will see, just as it was common in 1 Samuel 16 with Samuel, Goliath believes he's unfit for the challenge because he's a cute kid. He starts to trash talk him and he begins to ultimately curse David by his false gods. Here's what he says in verse 42. And the Philistine looked and saw David. He disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Goliath ends basically telling David this before the fight begins. He says, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to disgrace you and I'm going to do all of this by the power of my gods. David is not deterred. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David is not intimidated by the size of Goliath. He's not intimidated by Goliath's weapons. He reminds Goliath, you have mocked God and that will not go on forever. David's response draws stark contrast to their strategies, right? Goliath relies on might. Goliath relies on weapons. David relies on the Lord of hosts. Again, this looks like a mismatch. David doesn't see it like that though. David knows that he serves an all-powerful God who has all power in heaven and on earth. All David sees in front of him is a blasphemous mortal man in the face of an all-powerful immortal God. Who is the real underdog in this scene? In fact, David is so confident he calls his shot. Look in verse 46 and 47. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. 
David is saying, this is what's gonna happen. This is, about, this is what's about to go down and what's about to go down will be done so that the whole world will know Israel's God is mighty to save. Even in the face of, in, of seemingly insurmountable odds, he saves and he saves not in the ways that humanity would assume he would save. At every turn, the author has gone to great lengths to show the, the might and the invulnerability of Goliath compared to the, the weakness and the age of David. So what happens? Well, you can definitely call it a first round knockout. Here's how the text describes it. Verse 48, the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's hand. For all the anticipation, for all the trash talking, for all the mouthing of Goliath, it doesn't last very long. David doesn't run from Goliath like the other Israelites. He runs towards Goliath and he launches this tennis ball sized stone. He launches it with clear accuracy, with enormous force and he knocks down the giant. And yet it's not over. David piles on in victory. Verse 51, David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Goliath is severely wounded, so David takes the giant's own weapon and he uses it against him. And now the man who is dressed like a serpent dies from a head wound. We see Genesis 3.15, the giant's head is crushed. The runt has given the largest man in history a fatal blow. And just as God does not judge by appearance, we too, who do not war against flesh and blood, we cannot view our enemies by their size, their strength, or their cunning. David's crushing of the enemy's head leads to the rout of the Philistine army. It leads to the plundering of their goods, you'll see in verses that follow. David's people now share in the victory, though they had not earned it themselves, as they experienced deliverance from their unexpected champion. Oh, brothers and sisters, our God is mighty to save and to save in ways we would not expect. So three applications for our purposes this morning and for our theme from the David and Goliath narrative. And the first one is this, we must possess courageous faith. We should have courageous faith, faith in evangelism, faith in prayer, faith in giving, faith in going, faith in planting churches. We should have faith rather than fear, not because we are big, but because we serve an all powerful God. God has solved our biggest problems, that of sin and death. So we now, by the power of the Spirit, can face our lesser enemies, ones of personal sins and unseen powers. We need to, this morning, as we think about things like missions, we need to embrace the right kind of fear for these endeavors. Fear of God and not fear of man. And we need to possess the right kind of courage. An absolute trust that even in our weaknesses, God will accomplish his purposes through his people. Not because of our skill, but he will accomplish his purposes because of his people's faithfulness to the task. Second application, we must pursue humble zeal for God. 
We should have a zeal for God that is marked by humility. Humble because we didn't accomplish the victory ourselves. The right man on our side has accomplished our victory, but we're, we're zealous because he is worthy of all we can give him. He has redeemed us at great cost. If that is true, how in the world can we be cold towards him? How can we be cold towards his ways and towards his people and toward the loss if we understand that? David is willing to risk his comfort. David is willing to risk even his life for the glory of God. God. The question is, are we? And what will that look like for us? What will that kind of zeal look like in our lives? How will that impact our prayer life? How will it impact our loves? How will it impact our checkbook? How will it impact our time? And the primary way I think we can pursue humble zeal for God is through evangelism. You know, it's a very true statement that we commend what we cherish. We talk about what we treasure. I now have a 17-month-old named Ada. And if you come up and talk to me, I can't help but show you pictures of her and talk about her. My, grand, my, my parents have 14 grandkids. They'll be happy to talk to you about their 14 grandkids. That's because they love them. I mean, you know, we live in a world where we can barely keep from telling people about our favorite Netflix show. Which I think begs the question, by what we talk about, by what we post on social media, by how we spend our time, will people know that we love and cherish and treasure the Lord or so many other things? Final application, ponder his forgiveness for our failures. Finally, this text should remind us there is forgiveness for our failures because the victory is somebody else's. And that sort of love and affection, that kind of forgiveness made possible by our great God should make us grace-filled, humble, yet passionate people for his glory. You must remember this. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. But those who have been forgiven much, love much. For us to speak so little about our forgiveness begs the question, do we understand the links at which we have been forgiven? But that's the big problem this morning, brothers and sisters. The big problem is we are sinners. The big problem is we do fail. And the big problem is we do fall short of the glory of God. And though there are glimpses of Genesis 3.15 in this text, the fulfillment of one who would come, not just to defeat temporary enemies, but to defeat eternal enemies and to take on our ultimate enemies and to defeat our biggest problems would have to wait. Because the problem is David himself is also a sinner, so his victories are only momentary for his people. And so we are left waiting for a greater son of David who would bring ultimate victory and deliverance from our greatest enemies. And yet all of David's sons sin and fail and die and the hope of one who would come to turn back sin and turn back death lie dead in Jerusalem tombs. Until we once again return to Bethlehem and to the birth of another unlikely warrior king, another go-between man who will ultimately save his people and his salvation will not be temporary. It will be 
eternal. You see, there will be another in the line of Jesse who is baptized. He will be anointed. And immediately it says, the spirit descends upon him. And he, similar to David, goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to make war with that serpent from Eden. He goes out to tame the beast and to take on the blasphemous enemy of God. There will be another king who by faith would trust in the promises of God. He would trust that God would deliver him from the hand of the enemy, the one who would cry with loud cries, the New Testament tells us, to the one who was able to save him from certain death. There will be another champion whose fate will be the fate of his people. And this one, the New Testament tells us, will plunder the strong man's house. And how did he do it? How does he accomplish ultimate salvation and deliverance for the people of God? He does it by becoming our go-between man, the one standing in the place of the many. We are on the sidelines like the Israelite soldiers and we need another son of Jesse to stand between us and our enemies, to stand between us and sin, to stand between us and death, to stand between us and the serpent, Satan himself. And at the cross... He defeats our greatest enemies and he vanquishes our foe by turning our foe's own weapons against him. In that moment, he becomes our sin bearer who takes our shame and he takes our guilt. He takes the penalty of our sin the judgment of God do our sins and our rebellion and our wickedness hour after hour touches down upon him at Golgotha. And in so doing, what he is doing in that moment is he is taking away our enemy's own weapons, weapons of accusation and death for sin. He delivers a fatal head wound to the serpent as now our brother, our brother John tells us the accuser of our brothers who accuses them night and day has been thrown down because at the cross, the great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee reminds us he became for us all that God must judge so that we by faith in him might become all that God cannot. He is our go-between man. He is the promised one of Genesis 3.15. He is the rod of Jesse. He is Jesus of Nazareth, rightful heir to the throne of David. The even greater shepherd of the sheep who did not just risk his life for his people, he laid it down. And yet we know that his sacrifice has been accepted. We know that his kingdom will last forever because he needs a tomb like David, yet he needs his for three days only. Friends, and in particular, any here who may not follow Jesus yet. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we know it or not, we are sinners who are not right with God. But the greatest news in all the world is that God has provided a way for us to be made right with him. He has provided a way for ultimate salvation and he has done it through a go-between man. In fact, on the last day, on the day of judgment, there will be two options. You will either face judgment with a go-between man named Jesus on your side or you will face judgment on your own and you will be swept away. Jesus stands ready to become your refuge and strong tower from the judgment to come. If only you will surrender your life to him. If only you will cry out with faith to him. And believers, this text should remind us. If we are in Christ, we now have the spirit. 
We are these Israelite soldiers in verse 51. We are now advancing because our king has already accomplished the victory. We are advancing in this mission. We move forward with courageous faith and humble zeal in our prayers, in our sending, in our going because our champion has won and because he is worthy of all that we can give him. We go forward cherishing him and with confidence because even when we fail, for every time we doubt it, for every time we have failed to be courageous with our faith, for every time we have cowered, Jesus bore that penalty for our sin in his own body on the tree. We who have been forgiven much, love much. In fact, brothers and sisters, he paid it all. All to him we owe. You know, all those years ago when I was at that minor league baseball game and those drunk guys were cussing at us and screaming at us for not doing the wave, I was scared initially. And then I remembered sitting next to me was my uncle who weighed 260 pounds, bench pressed 500 pounds, and as soon as he stood up, they sat down. Oh, brothers and sisters, in so much of a greater way. We go forward with courageous faith no matter what we face in this life because we are more than conquerors, but we need to understand why we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors because of him who has loved us. Diseases, disasters, pandemic, death, even sin will not have the last word for us. Because our future is connected to our king. Our future is connected to our go-between man. And he is doing just fine. He is seated at the right hand of the father, poised for what he's going to do next. After all, Luther reminds us in that great hymn, the mighty fortress is our God. As we go forward in this mission, we are not underdogs. For the right man is on our side. In fact, brothers and sisters, the Lord of hosts is with us. Let's pray. Father, now as we close up this time, Father, I do pray that you would help us. Father, a constant prayer of ours should be who are followers who sometimes struggle in these things. Our constant prayer should be this, Lord, I believe. Will you help my unbelief? You know, the Psalms tell us that some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Father, we're thankful that Jesus Christ has set his affections upon us. Indeed, Father, may our prayer be, he paid it all, all to him I owe. And then, Father, would you give us practical ways to live that out this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.